Luke 2, verses 21 to 24. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You may be seated. All right, well, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church. We're glad that you're here. Um, We are almost at Christmas, and as we look at the Advent season, um, we continue to journey through the book of Luke, and we hope that no matter where you find yourself in regards to faith, that uh, you feel the, the welcome here to engage the person in the work of Jesus. As we look at scriptures, we want to highlight the truth of, of God's grace to us in sending Jesus to us, um, and uh, the, the Christmas story, uh, the coming of Jesus uh, to us as a baby uh, is Uh, largely found in Luke 1 and 2, so we're spending a lot of time here in these weeks uh, in these chapters of Luke. So we're coming today uh, to a passage that is is brief but but thorough and and rich and thick in its connection um, to the the greater story that God has told in scriptures. Um, And so as we do that, we we have a, uh, a moment today um, to, to really spend kind of the, the, the mental energy uh, to concentrate on the holiness of God. Um, and, and this is a, a concept that is, is spread all throughout Scripture, um, but it's often uh, just difficult for us to, to really grasp and uh, to understand what it means for God to be holy and, and what it means for Him uh, even to call us to be holy. Um, and one of the, the more helpful illustrations to me over the years about holiness has had to do with, uh, with, with our sun, the, the, the sun up in the sky. Um, we all know how powerful the sun is and how its radiant beams uh, bring life right to us, um, but also they can kind of damage us uh, if we're not careful. Um, and really, if we... Um, if we just kind of jumped in a shuttle and got as close to the thing as we could, we'd end up just completely obliterated by how, how powerful the sun is. And, and so in some ways, the holiness of God can be compared to the sun because of its uniqueness in our solar system, how there's nothing else like it, how all of uh, the life and energy uh, exude from it, um, and yet how it is so utterly powerful that, that it is in many ways uh, unapproachable. Uh, that we cannot go near it uh, for fear of our very own lives. And uh, one thing, so I've lived in Florida now for a little more than five years, and I remember uh, one of the first times that I traveled uh, out of Florida after having moved to Florida. So I moved to Florida in the fall of 2013, uh, lucky year number 13, yes. And, um, and in the spring of 2014, I got on a plane and flew to uh, Illinois and traveled to Illinois and Missouri. And um, I'll never forget, because uh, it was my first experience leaving as a Floridian, uh, that I was at the airport and, you know, uh, walking amongst basic zom- basically zombies, 
um, that were charred red. It was all of these visitors from the Midwest. Um, they had brought their children down to show their children a wonderful time either at the beach or at Busch Gardens or at Disney, and in so doing had stumbled upon the very death that they were seeking to avoid <laughs> because they did not sleep, they did not rest, uh, they ran crazy getting their kids entertained and having fun and also forgot the sunscreen. So they're all, you know, red as lobsters and, you know, basically dying and kind of screaming at their children after trying to tell them to have fun all week. So it was really an interesting encounter, but it was something that reminded me of the power of the sun because, you know, these were folks who, you know, it's March and if you've ever lived in the Midwest or anywhere that's not Florida, you're never afraid of sunburn in March. It just isn't a reality, but when you're here, you have to be afraid of that because it's a can really happen. Uh, I, got a, I got my first sunburn, sunburn at a spring training, uh, my first sunburn after living here, at a spring training game. Uh, the Minnesota Twins were playing the Blue Jays in Dunedin, and I was like, yeah, it's March. Went to watch baseball. And yeah, sure, in the evening I couldn't sleep because I was absolutely charred, uh, completely roasted. And so we, we know what, what a sunburn is like. We know what the power of the sun is. Uh, and we can often un, underestimate how powerful it is when we don't uh, dwell in a place like Florida where the sun is just insanely intense. Um, and the, and the, the more and more we get used to it, uh, the more and more, obviously, our skin is accustomed to it. But for those who are not accustomed to it, it can be rather intense. And so in many ways, the sun can help us understand that the holiness of God is something that's unapproachable, something that is absolutely unique, something that is life-giving and powerful, but also in some ways dangerous. And that's kind of the weird thing for us when we think about the holiness of God. We're like, why... Why would the holiness of God be dangerous? And so we're going to dig into that in a little bit and, uh, and look at, uh, especially look at this passage and what it has to do in connection with God's holiness and how Jesus being born as a baby and coming into the temple is connected to the greater story of God, the holy God, who's pursuing an unholy people. Um, and so I want to read just the, the brief passage again here this morning. Uh, we like to read and reread scripture uh, to continue to familiarize ourselves with it and understand it. And then from there, we're going to jump back into the Old Testament for a little bit and then work our way back forward uh, to this story. So here's Luke 2, 21 to 24 again. Uh, it says this about Jesus. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's pray quick before we jump into this. Lord, thank you for this day. Um, we are grateful for this season, uh, a time where we can think and reflect um, and remember and realize so much about Christ and his coming to us um, in this holiday that we celebrate in Christmas and even this season of Advent and thinking and waiting and hoping for his return. Um, we... We have all sorts of things that we've faced this week. Um, sometimes we come into this moment and we're utterly uh, exhausted or we're, we're distracted or we're worn out. And God, there's nothing wrong with that. We're a tired people because life is hard. Um, and that's what's true. And you never come to us to reprimand us for that. You never come to us to beat us up for, for being tired and, and working in this world. 
Um, you instead come to bring us, us comfort. Uh, and you, you come to bear our burden for us, which is something that is just staggeringly unbelievable. Uh, because who is God that he would come and bear our burden? Uh, yet that is what Christ has done. The Son of God made manifest as a baby, come to be a man to live under the law so that he could fulfill all of the obligations of that law and present us to himself as holy and spotless. That is just phenomenal. It is a story that we need to hear anew week after week, even day after day, because we are so prone to forget it. And when we forget it, we find ourselves in all sorts of a mess. And so we pray today that you would untangle our mess, that in our hearts and in our minds you would give us peace as we sit amidst the people who are in a frenzy of work trying to do for themselves what God has already done for them. God, we find ourselves in that place so many times. And so open our hearts today to this message, to the truth of Jesus that we might see uh, what it is that, that even this small little passage is telling us about Jesus and how that matters for us today because it is utterly important. And so we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this small little look at a significant event in the very early life of Jesus shows us something profound regarding the way Jesus is connected to the entire story that God has been telling uh, since the beginning of um, his creation. Um, and so what we actually need to do to, to kind of get the weight of this moment uh, is, is go back into the Old Testament. And so I want you, if you've got a Bible, to grab your Bible, or if you've got a Bible app, feel free to gra grab your Bible app. Uh, if you don't have either of those, we have some Bibles in the back. Um, you can feel free to take those and make them your own. And real quick, everybody just turn to your favorite book in the Old Testament. All right? So everybody turn to your favorite book in the Old Testament. All right? Cool. I'm assuming we're all going to the same place because everybody's favorite book in the Old Testament is Leviticus. So here we go. Leviticus, I know you're already there. We're going to look first at chapter 11 and then at chapter 15. So I know Leviticus wasn't your favorite. Leviticus is like if you go, have ever gone through the Bible reading plan, right? You start in January, right? Like when you've made your New Year's resolution and you're going to the gym every day and you stopped cussing and drinking soda and reading the Bible, right? So like it's, it's on like Donkey Kong. Like you're, you're getting fit, you're feeling good, you're reading Genesis, right? It's exciting, God's making stuff, you know, like God flooding stuff, that's a little scary, God, you know, like people are populating the world, like it's really exciting, and then God calls these people to himself, and then Exodus is still pretty cool, there's a lot of action, it's kind of like war with God in Egypt, like whoa, cool, and he delivers them, right? And then Genesis and Exodus, pretty cool, and it's like February or March or whenever it is, so you know, you're done at the gym and you're drinking Coke like crazy, but whatever, at least you're still reading the Bible, and then you come to Leviticus, and it's all over. It's done. You're depressed, right? You're like, I just, I'm going to be fat and unhealthy, and I'm not going to read my Bible because New Year's resolutions are gone, and I'm in Leviticus. This is terrible, right? Leviticus is one of those books. It's like, what is this thing about, right? 
But what's crazy is that Leviticus shows us so much about how God is and how God wants to be with his people, uh, but because it's so difficult to understand and it's so wordy and there's all these rituals and things, we often kind of just fly over it or we miss it all together. And what I want to do is tie the story of Jesus that we see in Luke chapter 2 to the, the, the greater story of God coming to be with his people and the significant moment where God says to Moses and to his people, I want you to be with me. I I want you to be with me. That's what Leviticus is all about. It is God saying, God, who is holy, like the sun, unapproachable, right? Perfect, completely unique, different than us, other than powerful, life-giving, yet a little dangerous, right? God coming to his people saying, I want to be with you. And in order for me to be with you, this is what has to happen happen. And so in Leviticus 11, verse 44 and 45, is kind of a, a bit of a summary statement amidst all of the interesting rules that God's laying down. He says this, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So those verses are in the midst of some verses about critters and crawly things and how to not defy. But the, 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 the summary point in those verses, the, the reality of God's holiness and the necessity of our cleansing in order to be the people of the holy God is laid out for us in Leviticus. And so God says, I'm holy, and in order to, to be my people, you need to be holy too, right? And so much of Leviticus is showing in different ways and uh, through different ceremonies how the people of Israel were to approach the holiness of God. You see, at this point, they were just kind of chilling in the desert, right? Like walking around, fighting people every once in a while and just trying to eat. And they had the camp that was set up with tents all over the place. And in the middle of the camp was the tabernacle of God. And then the tabernacle was where the Ark, the Covenant, lived. And that's where the presence of God dwelt, right there amongst the people of Israel. And there were some moments where God's holiness and God's people interacted in ways not according to the laws that he had laid down, and, and death actually came to people because of the utter unapproachable nature of the holiness of God. And so much of Leviticus is showing Moses and also showing the priests and also showing the people, here's the, the things that are necessary for you to approach me. Leviticus 15.31 is another somewhat summarizing statement. It says, thus you, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Okay? Now, Leviticus deals primarily with two things. One is sin, and the other is uncleanness. Okay? Now, sin is any thought, deed, action, motive, uh, uh, sometimes in our omission and commission with both doing and not doing we sin, anything that is 
anti the perfect law of God that breaks his glory, right? So it's living uh, according to our own rule and not God's rule. It's living uh, out of the, the right, healthy, um, flourishing functions of human beings. And so it's war against other human beings or it's war against God or it's war against self. We break the things that God has, has created to be perfect and good and right and just. And in that sin, we are separated from our Heavenly Father. And God in Leviticus gives the priests and gives the people sacrifices to do when they sin. Right? And it's sacrifices like when you know you've sinned, do this one. Okay? When you know everybody else has sinned, you do this one. Right? When you know the priests have sinned, you do this one. And there's one for everybody who just doesn't even know that they sinned. There's that one. Right? So there's all these sacrifices to point to this reality that sin is an ever-present reality in our lives and God is making opportunity for um, restoration to happen between sinful humans and a holy God. But then the other thing, which often can be even more difficult to understand, is this issue of uncleanness. Okay? And the, 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 the ritual purity that God asks his people to have, and that he then gives them rules in order to obtain, is all about the fact that we are not holy like God. And when we think of being unholy, one of the the most poignant realities of unholiness is that we are not utterly life-giving in the way that we live. Because of the fracturing of human reality, because of the brokenness of sin, death entered the world, right? Death did not exist in the creation until sin happened, okay? When death happened, when Adam and Eve sinned and death was introduced into the world, death never came to God. Okay? God did not die at that moment. God has not died, and he will not die. God has always been alive. He will always give life, and he will always be living. And so at the moment that sin was introduced into the creative cycle, that life was broken And in that brokenness of life, we became something other than what God had created us to be and became so separate from the life-giving holiness of God. That uncleanness, or that death brought uncleanness. And so when you look at the ritual stuff where the Israelites had to stay pure, so much of it had to do with death and the cycle of life and death. And so there were rules about leprosy because leprosy was a disease that killed stuff. Okay? There was uh, rules about mold and mildew, <laughs> right? Because mold and mildew are, are, are infestations that decay and eat away at stuff, right? There were, there were rules about dead bodies and dead animals and blood because all of these things are attached to life cycle, dying and living and dying and living, which are things that God never experiences, dying and living and dying and living because he's eternally alive. And so all of the ritual impurity that happens, uh, God gives a way for there to be purity, right? Now, uncleanness in Leviticus and all through the Jewish life isn't the same thing as sin, okay? Uncleanness is just the state of being not holy like God, not being completely life-giving, okay? It is our reality. We are unclean. God's people were unclean. But God did not want the distance to exist between him as holy and perfect and clean and his people as broken and dying and unclean. And so he said, here's what you need to do in order to live in fellowship with me. And there were different rules of purity for people and for priests and 
there were different rules along the way, but the whole thing is pointing to this reality that we are different than our holy God. And that something needs to happen in order to make us fit for fellowship with a holy God. Does that all make sense? I know it's, it's Leviticus, right? It's Leviticus. So, the whole point of going back to Leviticus is to show that all the way forward in Luke, these laws were still being practiced in the Jewish community that Jesus is born in, right? And so eight days after Jesus is born, he goes back to the temple to be circumcised. That's when they say, yep, his name is Jesus. We saw that same thing happen with his cousin, John uh, the Baptist. The same thing had happened with Elizabeth and his dad, Zechariah, and John. They, they did the same thing. And then it talks about the, the purification that happens for Mary because one of the rules in Leviticus has to do with after childbirth, you have to have ritual cleansing as well because there's connection to all of the reality of the life-death cycle in the birthing of a child, right? A child is born and immediately you know it's fragile, Right? It needs to be tended to because if it's not, it'll die. And there's, there's just the life cycle. Every time there's connection to that reality and some of the parts of life that are connected to it, there needed to be cleansing. And so Jesus and his family submit to these ritual cleansing laws. And in so doing, they're connected to the people of God who desired the presence of God and therefore are continuing in these traditions. Right? So Mary and Joseph are people who want to be in the presence of God but know that they're unclean and so they're going to do what God told them in order to be cleansed so that they can remain a part of a worshiping community. They're acknowledging in this moment that they're unclean. They're acknowledging in this moment that they need something to make them fit for fellowship with God. That they in and of themselves, as they stood, were not fit. For fellowship with God. Is this resonating, right? They, they couldn't achieve it by themselves. They needed something externally to get them to that point. And so this happens when Mary comes and her purification at the temple takes place. And then they offer a sacrifice, which is supposed to be a lamb. Um, but there was special uh, circumstances for people that were not rich enough to have a lamb. You could bring uh, turtle doves or pigeons. And so that's what Mary and Joseph brought, which is one reason why we know that Mary and Joseph were poor, uh, which is one reason why we know that Jesus grew up in a poor family, right? So not only did God come to earth and become a man, but he became a baby, and not just did God become a man and a baby, but a baby and a poor family. That's how far down God lowered himself, right? Just a little side note there. So Jesus is in this community with this reality of uncleanness being known by all the people. They're continuing to practice these ceremonial duties, these rituals, because they are a people who recognize their inability to approach God, yet they cry out from within, God, we want to be your people. We want to have your presence. We want to be blessed by the holy God. And so we will do these things. It was a, it was a step of faith every time they did it. Right? They had no sure knowledge that they were being cleansed. They just trusted that God said, this is what you do to get cleansed, so that's what we're going to do. They acted in faith that they could now come near to God in that moment. But then what we see in Luke, and we've already done some stories in Luke, some parables already, in the next few months we're going to be looking at more stories in Luke. So we see it in Luke, we see it in Matthew and Mark and in John as well, that Jesus, in his ministry, uh, throughout the Gospels, 
we start to recognize that the ritual laws are not treated the same by Jesus as they are by the rest of the community. Okay? Jesus starts doing things that would make him ritually unclean, and he pays no regard to the fact that he's unclean or that he should be made unclean. In fact, what happens with the life of Jesus is that he never becomes unclean, but in fact, he becomes a cleanser. Okay? The world is filled with things that will pollute you, is kind of this idea of ritual cleansing. You can touch these things and become unclean. And Jesus keeps touching the things that you're not to touch because it'll make you unclean. And instead of becoming unclean, he makes the things unclean. He makes the things clean. He's a cleanser. He's completely the opposite of every man who's ever lived before him who would become unclean by touching dead things or fluids or animals or whatever attached to the life cycle of humanity. Case in point, in Matthew chapter 8, in verse 1, it says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Leprosy and contact with leprosy was treated extremely severely in Leviticus and in the Jewish community. It was highly contagious and was spreading like wildfire. And so lepers were literally forced to live outside in a different colony so that they could not have contact with the regular community. Right? A sentence of leprosy was a sentence of separation for anybody who lived in this community. And yet, words started to spread. There's a guy that makes stuff clean instead of being made unclean. He seems to be throwing caution to the wind and just running around willy-nilly, breaking all the ritual laws, and he's cleansing stuff. And if you're a leper, exiled to a colony outside of your community, set there to basically die, you're going to come to Jesus to be clean, like this leper does. So instead of being made unclean and, and getting leprosy, and then having to go separate himself outside of the community forever, Jesus doesn't get leprosy. He gives cleanliness, right? What's going on with Jesus? This is somebody that's never, somebody like something they've never experienced before. Look at Luke chapter 8. It's like this story. It's one of my favorite sections of Jesus' ministry. It's like this story was specifically written to point us to Leviticus and say, the old days are over. Christ has come and brought a whole new world. Luke 8, verse 40. I'm going to read a chunk here. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, the crowds welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. 
And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Right? As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So there's a big crowd. Verse 43, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She was living in a perpetual state of isolation because she was unclean. This medical issue made her completely unclean. She could not fellowship and worship and be in contact with anybody. Verse 44, she came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge, discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me on my garment behind me while I'm in this giant crowd? <laughs> When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you as if to say, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you. Right? And Jesus said, no, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. And he, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Wow. While he was still speaking. Someone from Jairus' house, from the ruler's house, came and said, Your daughter's dead. She didn't make it. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. They knew it. Okay? Fact. No breath. No heartbeat. Shaking her to wake her up. She was dead. They laughed at him. But, verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. An unclean woman dwelling for years outside the camp, unable to touch her friends, if she was married, her husband, if she had kids, her children, un unable to go to synagogue to hear God's word read, right? Couldn't go to feasts and festivals, attend a sacrifice because she was unclean and she heard of a cleanser and touched his robe. And instead of uncleanness going to Jesus, cleansing came from him to her and she was healed. And then with the audacity of, I don't even know, this boldness that Jesus had, walks into the womb of a dead girl. The very presence of a corpse means uncleanness, just like that. Walks in, and not just hangs around a dead body. Like, if you touch a blanket to touch a dead body, you are unclean. Like, that's how severe these ritual laws were. Jesus touched her, and instead of being unclean, gave a life, right? This ministry, this life, 
this existence is something that this Jewish community had never seen. It was, in fact, the holiness of God come near to his people in a different, approachable, changing way to, to bring transformation to those who were unclean, to those who were dying, to those who were broken and sinful. Jesus could do these things because Jesus was the very holiness of God. Jesus is the Son of God from all time, eternity past. Had no beginning, will have no ending. Was a part of the creation of everything and existed with the Father and the Spirit in perfect unity. And He came as this baby born under these ritual purification laws to shatter everything and to declare boldly, you can't cleanse yourself enough, but I can. I can make you whole. I can make you clean. I am, in fact, the holiness of God come to touch you. He completely changed the narrative and became for us what we could never fully become by ourselves. You see, Hebrews, you're going to want to read it after this passage today. Hebrews tells us the story of how Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament laws and becomes the perfect priest and ushers in the presence of God and does all the work that all of the law could not fulfill, that even though we did those laws, even though the Israelites did those laws, they had to repeat them year after year, day after day, month after month, because they always had to pay attention to whether they were unclean or not. And Jesus ended all of that cycle to say once and for all, you've been made clean by me. Jesus is the very holiness of God come to make us clean and to make us new. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus came in connection to all of the Old Testament promises to fulfill every single one of them so that he himself could be and bring the presence of God to God's people. By his coming and by his dying, he has cleansed us once and for all. And so back to this dedication passage in Luke chapter 2. Jesus connects to this greater story of the Old Testament. He's circumcised, which is a part of the covenant that was given to Abraham, where God said, set apart, uh, set apart yourselves. You are to be different. You are to be unique because I am, to call, I am here to call you to myself and to make you my own people. And so he gave them a sign, a sign that was unseen, but a sign nonetheless that was given by God to mark his people. Jesus also is consecrated as the firstborn, as it says in connection with the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's in connection to the Exodus. Because remember the last plague of, I said it, of Exodus was the death of the firstborn, right? And God told Moses, 
paint blood on the door, and the angel of death is going to come over Egypt, and every firstborn of every family and every, every flock, all the firstborn are going to die in the whole land, except in houses that have the blood painted over the door. Right? So then it happened. All the boys in the Jewish homes were alive. All the boys in, in the Egyptian homes were dead. They said, get out of, I hate you, get out of here. They ran out of town. And, and, and God says, mark the firstborn from here on out to remember this day that I saved you out of Egypt by slaying the firstborn, but I spared your house. I spared your firstborn. So consecrate all the firstborn now from here on forever to remember what I did, right? And so Jesus is connected to that Exodus story because he's consecrated as the firstborn and this community recognizes and remembers that God is the one who saved them. And then as well, as we've already talked about, Mary's purification and their sacrificial offering of turtle doves or pigeons. All of this is happening according to the Levitical ritual cleansing to connect them to the law of God that says separate the clean and the unclean. Because I am holy and you're to be holy as I am holy. Jesus is connected to all of these Old Testament realities and these covenants. And don't miss the fact that his name is Jesus, which is Yeshua, which is Joshua, which is the guy who led Israel uh, into the promised land and is a name that means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. All of this tying Jesus to this grand narrative where we as God's created people have been broken and separated from him, but all along he desires to be our God. He desires to come near. He desires to let us be his people and let his presence dwell among us. Yet he has to do something for us because we are unable in our own selves to be able, to be clean, to be cleansed, to be holy. So simultaneously we're shown all of these covenants and all of these practices and all of these significant identities surrounding the person and work of Jesus because he is the one to come. He is the one that was sent to fulfill all of these promises to finally and at last satisfy the holiness of God and to make us God's people by giving us his very holiness. And so the incarnation of Jesus is essential to us. Because God the Son becomes a man born under the law in the community of faith that trusts God's revealed plan for their nearness to him. So God the Son, the eternal, the always existing, becomes a man and lives within this community to finally and once and for all satisfy all of God's requirements because he's sinless and pure and in fact life-giving instead of death-absorbing like we are. Yet even though he's become a man, He remains fully God and therefore he's the only one that isn't made unclean by touching unclean things. In fact, Jesus is the cleanser that all the unclean are to come to him. But don't miss this, the fact that Jesus came to be that cleanser, to be God and man means that for the first time ever in the history of the world we could lay our hands on God. So broken, separated, leprous, dead, dying, sad, lonely, sinful people could touch God and be changed. But proud, arrogant, self-righteous, egotistical, megalomaniac leaders what happened? They did. 
the holiness of God became touchable, and in becoming touchable, he became killable. And to be sure, when given the opportunity to kill God, mankind did it. Mankind did it. We couldn't handle his claims. We couldn't handle his perfection. We couldn't handle the conviction of seeing life lived out before us perfectly. We couldn't handle being called out in our sin, not just our external deeds, but our internal hearts that were dark and corrupt. So what did we do? We said, let's get rid of him. We, right? Not the age-old argument. Did Rome kill him? Did Jews kill him? Me, right? We couldn't handle this confrontational reality of the perfect holiness of God. It exposed us too much. I'm too dark. I'm too broken. I'm too fragile. I, I cannot deal right now, right? I just can't deal. And we slayed Jesus. We need to pull this in for ourselves and recognize that for today, in this moment, we feel, right? We feel at times this distance between God and ourselves, right? Some of us, maybe we're just, we're just starting to try to imagine what God is like. We're pulling ideas from philosophy and religion and that religion and that and the culture and these different ideas and we're trying, what is God really like? And we often just construct them in our own image, but if we step back and really say, well, if there is truly a God, he has to be bigger than anything I can even fabricate. He has to be completely separate and totally other than, and so therefore, if he's that, how can I, how can I seek him if he is so different than us, right? Or even sometimes a skeptic's accusation against the Christian that we would be so arrogant as to say we know God or the way to God, sometimes seeming as an arrogant type of a statement that we can make in our own righteousness misunderstanding the fact that really we as Christians step back and we say, no, the, the only way, the only way I've ever had any chance of knowing God is that he would tell me, that he, through his word and by his spirit, would show me that he is who he is. That's the only way I know. That's the only chance I have. But even yet, sometimes we're, we're hesitant, right? The idea of church, oy, I don't know if I want to go there. Right? Even the idea of, of, of reading God's word or coming to him in prayer, like, I, I don't know if I'm fit to do that. I don't know if I can deserve that. And I, every time I try this church thing or try this good thing, I, I, I mess that up. Like, I, I keep falling on my face. I make these promises. New Year's coming. I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to fail again. And it's like, I just keep missing the mark. We feel this weight of the difference between God's glory and our uncleanness. We're just not godly. We're just not holy. And Jesus comes boldly to us to say, yes, I know, and I'm coming to you. That's incarnation. Yes, I know, and I'm coming to you. We see in this passage that not only 
did Jesus come to save, but in fact that we are people that needed him to come and save. We have such a desperate need of God to break down the barrier between us and him. And he's done it in Christ. He's done it in the fullness of Jesus' life, lived perfectly in fellowship with God. He's done it in a way that breaks down the barriers between us and God. It leads not to arrogance, but to confidence because we know that Jesus has made the way. One last passage as we wrap up. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You're washed. In Jesus, you're sprinkled clean. The declaration over you by faith in Christ is you're set, you're good. Come draw near because he's drawn near to you. You are my child. You are my people. I am your God. I've done it all for you. This is the bold declaration of the incarnation of Jesus. He came to draw near. He came to draw near. And this is the precious gift that he's given us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for doing what was impossible for us to do. Oh, but my, how we still try. We still feel the weight and the guilt and the uncleanness and sometimes condemnation and shame. And we, we hesitate to draw near. We, we shrink back from coming close. We think, I, I can't open the Bible again. I just did that sin yesterday or I'm so foolish in that moment last week, I, I can't come to God again. What's he going to do this time? I, I've, I've failed too many times. I'm, I'm too fragile. I'm too frail. I'm too, I'm too anxious. I'm too worried. I'm, I'm, I'm too incomplete. I, I can't come. Sweet Spirit, would you calm and quiet and even muzzle <laughs> these terrible voices? of condemnation, that we might delight in the full cleansing of Christ for us, because he was the lamb who was slain. His blood's on the doorpost. He's the offering that's been made. He's the scapegoat in the wilderness, taking our sin far away. He's the offering for sin and sacrifice. He's the fulfillment of the entire book of Leviticus and all of the cleansing laws so that today we can stand before a holy God as holy people.
made holy by Jesus and called to be holy in Jesus all the way until the day when death is removed and the stain is gone. We hope eagerly and expectantly for that day and today we wrestle to set aside the doubts and fears and to believe in faith the truth of the gospel that we can come to God. We can be known, we can be forgiven, we can be washed, we can be accepted and adopted and loved and secured in the arms of him who has done it all for us. God, ground us in that truth today. We need your spirit to make it real to our hearts and our heads. We submit to it. We joyfully rejoice in it. And we are grateful because you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.